Okay, uh, welcome. This is Charlie, and uh, this is the podcast to Hell and Back, uh, March 28th, 2018. Uh, if you're listening live, it's 4 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, and uh, and uh, it's I'm doing it from a room in our house where I just close the door so the dogs don't get me. And uh, other people don't make noise if they're coming or going. And um, so I'm getting started. And the topic today, um, most of the time, will be uh, what it means to be dialectical, uh, and especially what what it means to be dialectical uh, when we're caught somehow in the jaws between the jaws of hell of one kind or another, where we're stuck uh, in a painful situation with some suffering with no obvious way out at the moment and just how do we tolerate that in various ways and um, that's really been the theme of the whole uh, podcast but uh, up to now we you we went through five principles of how you might use behavioral change principles in those situations and then I went through five principles of how you might use uh, acceptance uh, in those situations, that being the second underlying paradigm of DBT. And, uh, and this today, we're going to finish up with some more, a little bit more on acceptance and then move into the principles of dialectics um, and how you might use those. So I uh, just wanted to, to give you the overview there. I want to make a couple of announcements. Um, first of all, those of you who do listen live, um, though I have a feeling most people tune in from my website, which is charlieswenson.com, or from iTunes, where I think these get posted. Um, and there'll be no podcast for the next two weeks. Uh, I'll be away teaching. Um, there will be a podcast on April 18th. Um, after those two weeks, and uh, that'll be a, probably a follow-up to whatever I get to today. It seems to take me more than one hour to cover these principles of any paradigm. Then April 25th, the last Wednesday in April, again, no podcast, teaching again. But then uh, May 2nd and May 9th, um, I have an a invited special guest to join me, the way I had Cedar Coons join me before, and uh, uh, spoke to me about um, dealing with the loss of her sister. But in this one, it'll be a little different. I'm uh, going to have Melanie Harned, who, uh, if you're in the DBT world of therapy, you know her as a person who's developed a DBT with prolonged exposure for the treatment of PTSD with people who are also emotionally dysregulated and uh, just, just very exciting uh, and uh, moving uh, treatment that she's developed for 14, 15 years now and is really out there, getting out there. So I'm going to talk with her with the idea that we might be able to learn lessons for all of us, not just people who are in treatment, uh, from somebody who is spending all of her time and thinking, going into understanding trauma uh, and the treatment of trauma and the use of exposure for the treatment of trauma, that there, I think there'll be lessons for 
everybody at how we live, how we cope with our previous adversities and our current difficult situations and our future traumatic situations, just sort of like lessons from um, from the front lines, you might say, that I'm hoping that I'll just uh, interview and talk with Melanie and then exchange ideas over a period of two podcasts, May 2nd and May 9th. Last announcement is uh, that uh, there's one person who, um, via Perry Hoffman, sent a an email to me or a message uh, with a question related to the topics I've been talking about and about today. I'm going to uh, address her question, but it, it made me think to also to ask you uh, to let you know, anybody who's listening, to feel free to send me questions that you think might be pertinent to what I'm talking about. And I may or may not be able to directly address them, but but I can weave in responses that would uh, partially address them, and, and maybe they'll uh, sometimes really just be right on target with what I'm trying to talk about. So well, I'll, I'll get back to this about the one today, but I just wanted to invite anybody to do that. My email address is the letter c.robert.swenson at gmail.com, and it's also findable on my website. Okay, so back to acceptance. Uh, What we've discussed of the five principles that I've outlined before and that I wrote about in the book that I wrote on principles of of DBT um, is uh, I spent a fair amount of time last time talking about um, the implications of living in the present moment, in the here and now, and how that translates into coping with uh, adversity. Um, The lessons that have to do with impermanence, with uh, understanding that nothing ever, ever stays the same, that things are constantly changing, and you just can't count on any one moment being the same as any other moment. Uh, Things keep changing. And the third principle was about non-attachment, how letting go of our attachments to certain ideas and certain intentions, certain expectations uh, can be uh, the pathway to getting out of some suffering. Um, uh, I just want, I wanted, I want to throw in this comment because it's available to those of you who can get on HBO uh, on television and um, was I partially watched and I plan to go back and totally watch there was a four-hour, like two-part documentary, two hours each, about the comedian Gary Shandling. It was created by Judd Apatow, who uh, was mentored by Gary Shandling and who really valued him. And it's a very moving story of his life and how he became a comedian and then as a comedian what he struggled with. And he was torn between oh, two things that caused him a lot of suffering. One thing was wanting to be a fantastic comedian and just really uh, do as good as he could do uh, and be immersed in that and be very driven about that, um, working hard at that. And at the same time, he he wanted to live in the present moment. He had lost a brother when he was very young, and it, it left a stamp on his life about the importance of valuing the here and now and the moment. And he was always torn for many years between working really hard to be, a, you know, a future-oriented thinking about 
coming up with great jokes, and it caused him a lot of suffering that it kept pulling him out of the present moment where he just wanted to be. And so it was, uh, and it, there was a very notab- notable comment made in this documentary when they were interviewing part of the time uh, Jim Carrey about Gary Shandling, who looked at him as a, as a real comic genius. And Jim Carrey said, you know, what he's talking about uh, is getting off the train. And getting off the train is something that uh, is terrifying. And you can just tell Jim Carrey gets it, um, that, you know, letting go of things we've been attached to, that we've been busy with, that have doc, uh, have been you know major parts of our lives uh, because we find that they uh, cause us more suffering. Uh, they become obstacles to happiness instead of bringing actual happiness. So that's partly where this comes from today. Just thought I'd throw that in about uh, attachment, non-attachment. Um, so today I want to start talking about interbeing. The next principle and in some ways the most complicated uh, one and I'm going to start it um, you never know in advance if this is a good idea or not but then that's the nature of this and you don't and I don't see any faces that tell me it's a bad idea because I'm just by myself so I'm going to go ahead and uh, share something it's also you anybody who listens to the very first podcast knows that this set of podcasts is dedicated to my um, late friend Cindy Sanderson, who died in 2003 of cancer after we had worked together for many years and been best friends and had worked together as teachers of DBT, in fact. So I just want to read a little piece from a book that I started writing years ago because it's pertinent to this. Uh, So just go with me. Settle back uh, like a bedtime story here. Uh, this is after she had passed away in the story. The first chapter of the book um, it would, is, a, is a story about our relationship up to the moment when she died. And when she died, uh, I said to her, uh, as I think I said in the first podcast, uh, when I was trying to make a final contact with her when she was mostly gone from contact, and I said, you know, Cindy, we're going to do this radio show in heaven because uh, we were planning to do a radio show, something like Car Talk. And uh, and she showed a little effort at smiling, and it was kind of the last communication. And then, uh, so I told the story up to that point. Then she had died that night. It was Thanksgiving night of 2003. And then um, this next chapter begins with, uh, it's called A Call from Cindy. Five years have passed. My phone rings. Hello. Uh, I say, I say hello. Uh, Hi, C. It's C. I pause. She says, C, it's me, for real. And I said, who is this? She says, "Um, it's Marilyn Monroe, you idiot. No, wait a minute. It couldn't be. She's dead. Who do you think it is? Do you not recognize my voice? It's your old pal, pal, see. You didn't really think I would leave you forever, did you? This is not funny, I said. Who is this? Whoever you are, you may sound like Cindy, but you're freaking me out. Who is this? And then she says, I guess I need to understand 
that it isn't every day that you get a call from the dead, is it? I'd be freaked out too, except that I am me, and I've had a chance to get used to it. Used to being dead, I mean. Now it's kind of ordinary. Hey, whoever this is, I'm not finding it to be funny at all, really. One more time, who is this? Hey, what am I supposed to do? Pretend I'm a living person, pretending to be a dead person? Really, Chuck Bob, I'm getting a little pissed off myself. Just listen to me. Hey, remember the time we were driving to Boston to do a workshop and we came to a toll booth? And I was in the passenger seat, but I was ready with exact change, a bunch of quarters, and you were digging in your pocket to get change just because you thought it was your job to do it. And then I said, just let me pay the toll. And you insisted that you were going to do it. And you were being so stubborn. So I just threw the quarters out the window into the toll machine right past your face. Pause. If this is actually Cindy, you should realize how totally obnoxious that was when you threw those quarters past me. I was furious. Yeah, I know that. Do you remember? We were on our way to the Doubletree Hotel in Cambridge when I just about, I just about passed out when we were standing up on the eighth floor looking over the rail down to the lobby below. It's a long pause. How do you know all of that? See, it's really me. As usual, my memory is better than yours. In fact, now that I've been dead for a few years, your memory is undoubtedly worse. You have lost a lot of brain cells since then, and I haven't. You must have lost a lot of brain cells when you died. No, I didn't lose any. I'm preserved. I'm sharp. I'm like a laser beam, and you are like a flashlight. So whoever this is, you're going to stick to the story? I mean, it's you. You are Cindy Sanderson. You are dead. And you're calling me on my cell phone five years after dying. You're telling me you have cell phones where you are. Well, we didn't have them when I first got here, but technology does spread, doesn't it? I hammered the administration here for years, and they finally relented and gave me a cell phone. Do you know what my area code is? I'm not sure I want to answer that. It's 000, of course. I have a lot of freedom here, but the relationships suck, and there's not a lot of imagination. No one gets my jokes. That's why I am calling you. I need someone who will laugh when I say ridiculous things. See, if this is you, and I'm not saying that it is, though it's pretty weird that you know those things from that trip to Boston. Anyway, if it is you, why are you calling? Just to talk? To catch up? I suppose you can see everything that happens anyway, right? Wrong, wrong, wrong. No, actually, I cannot. It's sort of like we're out to pasture here. It's pleasant enough, and I'm preserved better than in life. I don't even have cellulite on my legs anymore, which is a huge plus. But still, things are not perfect here. Every, everyone here seems rather satisfied with the routine, but something apparently went wrong when I died. I was not a normal live person, and I'm not a normal dead person. I still miss everyone. That never went away. I don't forget. And I'm going to stop reading there. It goes on but it's enough to give you uh, the flavor uh, and for me to refer to about why I would, would uh, read from that. The reason I'm reading from that is that in the concept of interbeing, 
it sort of violates our conventional thinking. It violates our conventional thinking in that it imagines it, it is a perspective of, of reality that uh, there are no boundaries. There's no boundaries between us. There's no boundaries, as we usually think of them, between life and death, between death and life, between here and there. And, uh, and, 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 and what goes along with that idea is that what we're made up of, what I'm made up of, includes Cindy Sanderson. She is in me. She is part of me. She is me. And I am made up of contributions from my ancestors, my parents, my siblings, uh, people that I knew growing up, uh, teachers, contributions from you as listeners to me, whether you reach out or not. It, it's really a radical point of view that says that really if you picture life if you draw a little stick figure, let's say, to draw yourself, and you make a little stick figure, and you make a very firm box around that, that figure to show, here is my boundary. I am inside this box, and the rest of the world is outside. And you draw other stick figures outside, but they're outside that box, and they have boxes around them. And that you, and, and, and that, conventional way of thinking, which is that I am me, I'm Charlie Swenson, I'm a unique self, I have ideas, and I am. And there are boundaries between me and other people, and out there, there are other people, and I can convey my ideas to those people. But what that misses, even if, there, even if that is also a correct perspective, what that misses is that actually everything that I say, every idea that I have, every gesture that I use when I talk, actually came from elsewhere. I didn't generate any of it myself. Myself. I'm using the word self here because it's hard to talk about all this stuff without using that concept, but really the concept here does not include there being a discrete, separate self. It's just that things pass through me. That when I talk to you, uh, I am Cindy Sanderson talking. I am my father. I am other people. I am you. I reflect where I've been today, who I've talked to. It's undeniable when you start letting yourself open up to the idea of it. It's just, there's no me here, except that there is a me that's made up of everything else that came in to be me, which is everything. Everything. It took the universe up to now to create me and to create you. And to put everything in, and literally everything is in there. I mean, this comes from teaching of Buddhist teachers, most my most fondly for me, Thich Nhat Hanh. But it's a not not uncommon teaching with people who've meditated for years. So the idea here with interbeing is a is a multiple idea. One is that there are no boundaries. There are no boundaries that actually what we call boundaries, if you look more and more carefully at them, they kind of dissolve in front of you. When I sit opposite a patient in my office, there is the boundary. I am the doctor. They are the patient. I am the therapist. They are the patient, etc. And uh, we each have our ideas. But, you know, from another perspective, from this other radically different perspective, we are a duality. 
and we really are. We're affecting each other every second from the moment that we first talk to each other, and we are becoming, uh, I have within me that patient as part of me, and vice versa. And so it, it defies that reality to say, um, you know, that I'm speaking from such a separate place. Um, and to realize that, to let oneself realize, oh, we are a duality here. We are like on a, on a whitewater uh, rafting trip, and we are on the same raft, and it's an inflatable raft, and when I move, it moves the other person. When the other person moves, it moves me. We are doing this together. And uh, there's a transaction going on that's very deep. And the more you look at how deep it, it is, uh, you kind of lose, lose your grip about how, con- how, how unconventional it is. But it does have a different flavor to it, and it does mean that in me is uh, the kids that we've watched from Florida on television recently uh, talking about gun violence and moving a lot of people in the country. And, and in me are the people who fight for guns. And be, that it's all part of my heritage. It's all part of me. And so I can really tap into that. And in me is Cindy Sanderson. So actually, by starting to write this book, I would, I would, I would generate dialogue between her and me that was really like the way she talked and like the way I talked, as far as I can tell. And it would make me laugh at times and cry at times. In other words, she was in there. She is in there. And and I think this is true for everybody, though we don't always think this way. When we do, we open ourselves up to the possibility that certain things are not gone, are not dead, are not necessarily separate, and there's a whole world of possibilities, a whole world of possibilities to be uh, that, that are in us and that are around us and that allow us to realize that we're highly interdependent. So the three main ideas are interdependency, the second is lack of boundaries. And the third is uh, lack of self. That the self is under constant, what we call the self, is under constant revision, constant reorganization. Every second, it's impermanent if it's there at all. And it is there. It's, a certain, it's made up of things that come from outside. And so it's always going on. And there is a sort of a, an overview term here called emptiness. If you're not familiar with it, it really just means that we are empty of anything that is completely ourselves, unique to ourselves. We are made up entirely of things that came from elsewhere, other entities in our lives. So that idea of interbeing, um, why, why would that be helpful if you were caught in adversity, in some version of hell? Well, for one thing, because when we are suffering like that, usually there's an increase in our sense of boundaries around us. Usually we feel more isolated. We feel trapped. We feel hopeless that there's not going to be something. It's sort of like life boils down to, I am suffering. I am in hell. I am trapped. And I can't get out. And I, whether it's a bad relationship that I'm in, whether it's a physical pain that I'm having, whether it's a striving like Gary Shandling had to be something, but by doing that every time he lost something, it's sort of like there's so many versions of being in hell. 
And if we're in hell and we're trapped between these things, usually our capacity to really have broader perspectives or radical perspectives kind of fade and I think causes even more suffering because uh, we feel so isolated. Um, let's say we're in terror about something that happened and we just get to where the more isolated we get, we just don't want to go outside. We don't want to leave our room. We want to lock our doors, uh, even in a safe place. And, uh, and, and we cause ourselves more and more suffering by getting more and more isolated. And it's, it's these times when we most desperately need a broader perspective of reality and a broader perspective of what's available and what the resources might be and the broader perspective of being interdependent with other people. And it's at that very moment that it's hardest to access that. So how can a perspective of inner being help when we're suffering, when we feel trapped and when we feel hopeless? Well, remember that box that I described if you were to draw yourself and put a very firm box around you as your boundary. And you look at that the way I was describing it and you feel it just it, it just captures I am alone. It look you look like you're in a chamber. You look like you're in a trap. You look like you're in a tomb. And others outside of there look like they're together. And what goes along with that usually is is I either I am made of really bad stuff or I have really bad luck, or there's something rotten about me, or the world is totally unfair to me, and I can't get out and do anything about it. And so the perspective of interbeing would look different. It would look, if you, if you redo that picture, if you could maintain that perspective, it's a, in that pers- there'd be no box around me. There'd be no box around any of us. And there would be interconnections, kind of like, channels between all of us and things so that if I did something I would know it was going to affect you and you would know you were going to affect me and I could reach out to you or I could reach inside me out to you knowing that you're already inside me and it could make me feel like uh, yeah I'm in a I'm in a crowded place and it's called me and uh, there's a lot of uh, resources and there's a lot of things in there that made me up and that are still actively keeping me who I am. And I also could reach out to other people. And if I did, it's going to change things, hopefully for the better. You never know for sure. You take a chance. But if you do reach out, uh, it can change. It can significantly change things uh, and change your picture of yourself where you're suffering. I'll give you just a brief example that just comes to mind right now. I had lunch with a friend the other day. Um, he's a therapist in town here and somebody who I've just uh, made a friendship with over the past year moved up from New York and uh, I decided to be open with him about a struggle I was going through and without going into all the details of it here I was it, it sort of had a, a resemblance in some ways to what I was talking about Gary Shandling because it was about how uh, I feel caught between uh, striving to be a better teacher uh, and to do things, having certain ambitions, having certain goals and destinations, but realizing that part of that striving is in order to get recognition. It isn't just to change the world, but I also get concerned about what people think of me and, and whether they think it's a good, good thing or what, when I'm teaching and things like that. 
and that I get I've recently become more aware of that aspect of it and more upset about that and and really wanting that not to be such a driving force. So I was talking to him about that and he, you know, and I've been mainly not wanting to talk to anybody about it, just sort of working on this in my own uh, world, in myself. Um, and he made this comment that really changed it, um, that through a different perspective. And it, and, he, and it was sort of related to what I'm talking about now in a different way. He said, he said, well, why don't you think of yourself like this? Like, imagine a little boy that for whatever reason feels that he's not getting enough support or recognition or praise or whatever it is, and he's not good enough. Let's imagine a little boy like that, and let's imagine that little boy is in you. Not that I know your history, but and and let's um, and and then let's think about that. That if you could think of it that way, or whatever version is actually a good, accurate version for you, couldn't you look on that person who's striving in that way with compassion? That that was a way he came to cope, and he may have done a really good job with some things, but he, he's partly driven by that motivation and that's completely understandable i thought oh my god that was a very sympathetic response a very non-judgmental response and it really opened up my mind to thinking and i just felt like okay that's helpful that just that one moment reaching out recognizing my interdependency on other people but how i uh, block it um, that if you do reach out, you might hear something like that. The way the person reached out to me sending uh, this message today uh, that, I, that I, I hope to be able to speak to. Um, so what else about interbeing? It also helps me to realize, helps, couldn't help all of us to realize that our suffering, whatever it is, is really not just the result of our own activities. You know, it's, it's really the product of of all of the causes and conditions that went into it, which certainly is not just me, or just you, or just Gary Shandling, or just somebody who's suffering because they can't regulate their emotions. All of that came about from the whole universe. The whole universe got together, you might say, conspired and put all these things together in such a way that at least for the moment the person is suffering. And so it really is a joint product, and if you think of it that way, it could as much as possible be a joint solution. You know, it's a problem that one person is holding right now. But if we define our problem in such a way that it's stuck inside us and it's a product of our own thinking, of our own activity, of our own uh, choices, and uh, that we have to suffer with it until we can figure it out, that's a very different way than thinking, you know what? This is something that came about because of everybody around me. And uh, let me see if I can just, just sort of tap into parts of myself that can think differently about this and reach out to someone in the world and even go back to certain people if they, I mean, if they might be able to be helpful to me. So this idea about things being so interdependent opens the door to the possibility that you don't have to be alone. You don't have to live alone even though you're living alone. You know what I mean? Like there are people in you and there are people around you and you might be able to find an opening there. Um, so I don't want to say that in a way that makes it sound like I don't understand that people do get stuck alone and it's really hard to get out of that. But still, I think the idea is, uh, is it, oh, it, it provides some possibility of hope uh, when you realize that 
you don't have to always think there's these really tight boundaries around everybody. Um, one more thing about this. Uh, now, let me save this for the dialectical part. Um, and the final principle, I just want to say something about, I just feel I could go on about each of these because each of these has been a product of a lot of thought for me and, and have been helpful to me. And I always feel like I'm not quite articulating them as well as I'd like to. Um, the last principle is just to say that things are perfect as they are. Things, it's just an assumption. It's just a way of, a, it's a perspective that things are perfect as they are, meaning just that, of course, things are the way they are. Of course, I have the conflict that I have. Of course, Jer Jer Gary Shandling did. Of course, this person, that person, every person who is struggling and suffering feels as they do and sometimes do things they regret because, of course, they're doing the best they can given the circumstances that arose that they are a reflection of all the causes and conditions that led up to this exact moment. How could you be otherwise if you think of it that way? It doesn't script the next moment necessarily, but it scripts everything up to now is now done. And you do the best you can given that. And sometimes then you criticize yourself for that. Um, but the idea is to be more compassionate and accepting of yourself. And I think that that can help in hell if you can keep that perspective that you are doing the best that you can because you want to just keep moving, just keep going. Last thing I will say about these principles is that I was once talking with Marsha Linehan probably 20 years ago or more, and she was saying, you know, that if, if she could have developed DBT as just purely mindfulness, uh, that she would have, uh, that it wouldn't have required all the other skills. Uh, but in fact, um, mindfulness all by itself uh, requires uh, a lot of other skills to be able to do it, to hold yourself together, to cope with distressing things that come up. Uh, so uh, these acceptance principles are great, um, and they're very helpful, but they're not everything. So trying to solve things, trying to change things, and the dialectical principles I'm going to talk about next, uh, I think really give uh, a broader application. And I always find, you know, those of you who go to DBT or doing DBT treatment or you go to DBT treatments or you go to DBT workshop and people always at the beginning do a mindfulness practice, well, that is probably the long, longest, longest term and deepest root of all the paradigms in DBT is probably the mindfulness that makes a lot of sense to get yourself in a non-judgmental, present moment, state of mind. But, you know, I sometimes think that we could just as well do dialectical exercises or change exercises and not just mindfulness because, really, it's the package of all three that's part of Linehan's brilliant, brilliant synthesis of three different sets of principles and all the strategies and skills that go with them uh, to help you solve life problems. Um, so let me move on to dialectics. What have we got? About We have about 25 minutes left. Um, five principles. Again, five principles. Um, and uh, I think what I want to do to start talking about them is actually uh, go over the question that was sent to me. Um, and just... Uh, 
express my gratitude to the person who sent it because uh, it's a very meaningful problem I think other people can relate to and she articulated it so well and she's clearly sincerely involved in this work um, so here's the I'm gonna the, the question it goes it's fair it's several paragraphs and I want to read a little bit and then comment from a dialectical perspective <clears throat> uh, she says first you have spoken uh, I think she's talking about both my uh, podcasts and uh, I think from what Perry Hoffman said to me when she sent this on that she had also read my book You've spoken about the way attachment to any outcome undermines our capacity to relate directly to the present moment and thus impedes our ability to access the innate wisdom of compassion, interdependence, and acceptance that arise in the present, all of which oxygenate effective change. By the way, I love that term. I've never used that before. I've never known myself to remember. But to that oxygenate, that effective change is oxygenated by that capacity to be in the present moment and with wisdom of compassion, interdependence, and acceptance. Um, absolutely, totally go with that. Um, that I would, I would say that does oxygenate effective change. Sometimes all you need actually to come about with a great idea for changing things in your life is to be understood by someone else. And next thing you know, you've thought of a better idea about what you're doing. Um, so I know, uh, I think I know what you mean if I'm talking now to the person who wrote this. Now here's the question as I see it, is she's asking, how do you be in the present moment? How do you be entirely in this present moment when you're attached to an outcome? like changing things and she's going to go further with what she feels she wants to change and uh, so uh, I mean I think one thing the main my main response to this would be that I don't think it's the correct understanding to think that you can't be in the present moment while you are attached to an outcome that looks to the future I think that they are a dialectic. I think there is a tension between them. But I think the resolution of that tension, which is would be a dialectical resolution of that tension, would preserve the essence of staying in the present moment, while it would also preserve attending to that outcome that one is attached to. Um, it often doesn't happen that way. We get attached to an outcome. I mean, how many times does it happen that you just sit down at your computer and you start writing something or you're going over something or you're answering questions or emails or something and you have completely lost awareness that you have a body. It's like your body has disappeared. You're now just a head and fingers on a computer and you really have lost touch. Uh, I do it. I do it. I know I'm speaking from experience as well as knowing that other people do this too and you lose touch with where you are sometimes and you really are losing touch with the present moment while you get immersed into the thought trails of typing into your computer uh, or being on your cell phone and so I think sometimes re re remaining in the present moment while you deal with something you're attached to is uh, requires uh, awareness and effort to do that so that, for instance, 
it may require revisiting awareness of your body again and again, which is not the only thing in the present moment, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> and also the breath, that we have these things going on that are right there with us, and we fall asleep to them while we do something else. So the idea would be, is it possible to be aware of the human body, your own body, the, uh, the pains in your body, the wonderful things in your body, the, the miracle of your body, and remain aware of all of that while entertaining what you need to do to pursue an attachment. <clears throat> and I think that that would be the effort, that would be a dialectical synthesis between two things that can exclude each other and would be my first beginning of an answer to the question that this, this becomes part of. And so it's sort of like staying, <clears throat> staying in the present, and as Thich Nhat Hanh would put it, the present becomes the host, and bringing the future, the idea of where you're going and what you're trying to do, into the present moment means you don't leave the present moment. You invite the future in, and you stay in touch. Uh, so for some people, it's dangerous to lose touch. Uh, some people move on and dissociate. All of us do a certain kind of generic kind of dissociating when we do that. The next thing she writes is, as someone who lives in the chaos of extreme dysregulation, I've experienced this firsthand. The overwhelming desire to feel better, that is, get out of hell fast, has consistently undermined my ability to wholly embody and trust my experience of nowness. So I think here is the attachment that sh that you are. T I'm going to talk directly to you. Other people can hear, but the attachment that you feel is the attachment to getting out of this hell of this moment to feel better. The overwhelming desire, the urgent desire. The desire beyond logic, it, it, it goes beyond logic, it's your body, it's your experience of your emotions, and it takes over, and it's really painful, it's really dysregulated, and you want to feel better, so of course you, you're striving in the moment to do that, and that can indeed compete with being in the present moment. Um, I think thinking dialectically what you do is you look at both sides of an opposition and you try to find what's valid on both sides. That's one of the first steps in thinking dialectically. So I would say in the now for you is emotional pain and the valid urge to get rid of it, to get relief, to stabilize yourself, to not be dysregulated and to reduce emotional pain, that, that those are completely understandable there's a valid urge to do that. You get past a certain level of distress, and it's just almost automatic. It's almost impossible not to. It's very hard not to, let's say. And it's a completely valid desire to try to remain rooted in the here and the now, which tends to bring, from a longer-term point of view, a, a more solid foundation and a sense of peace and an, enjoy, an enjoyment and some wisdom. She then writes, more precisely, it has derailed my capacity to linger long enough in the present moment for the insights that arise from direct observation to override the alarm bells in my nervous system 
and here she describes it as uh, you describe it as there being alarm bells in your nervous system these are things that are beyond voluntary and they go off and uh, like I said earlier today the whole universe has conspired around you to end up you having this in your current life um, and it over and you've got these uh, these alarm bells going off and it's very hard to just be in the present moment and be observing with awareness uh, while those bells are going off it's a hard thing and the question becomes what is the synthesis what is it that can honor both sides of this dialectic and I'll get further in that um, and you write so although my energy is relentlessly directed towards improving my life the results of that energy are invariably destructive or at best just ineffective and I have to know more detail of what you mean that is that the, that the results are invariably destructive or just ineffective because uh, I wonder if this is a, a narrowing of perspective such that you're not taking account of productive things that might be coming out of this, just that you they're, they're fruits that you're planting seeds for but that haven't arisen yet because you are so dedicated to this that I can, I'm imagining that these efforts are going to bear fruit if you can hang in there. Um, and I want to say about this that if I start to think about a dialectical synthesis of trying to be in the present moment and also trying to deal with these intense urges to get relief at the same time. I do think that DBT has answers uh, for that that are dialectical in nature. Um, for instance, I would think that, um, be, but, that trying to remain mindful, um, using observing as you go through this, but also, but also, and not separate, not 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 taking you too far away from this. But what is it when you're aware of pain in in you? I think the job is then to take care of that pain. To take care of that pain, and not it doesn't mean you have to abandon the present moment. The job of the present moment is to take care of that pain, and the technique for taking care of that pain might be to use the distress tolerance techniques within DBT of distracting or self-soothing or improving the moment uh, and, and the, the various skills, including the reality acceptance skills, uh, as, well, as well as during the time that you're not in a, such a high level of distress, uh, coping ahead, another DBT skill, by um, coming up with what's my plan going to be so that I don't need to think logically about it when it comes up and my guess is you've already done a lot of this but the idea would be to have plans implement plans when you're in distress and to me that indicates awareness that is present moment activity that is positive activity that is a form of loving yourself and it's, it really is like, imagine that this isn't just you, but this is you and your baby, if you had a baby. And I don't know anything about your life, but if you any of you have had a baby, and the baby is in a lot of distress and crying, you don't have to make a choice between whether you're going to be in the present moment or take care of your baby crying. That's what you do. And 
to the degree that you can really be there for your baby and hold your baby and do what's necessary to help calm the baby down, you are loving that baby. You are being in the present moment. There's nothing more important than that right then. And then when the baby is not crying and is not in the same level of distress, it's can you just be there with that baby and enjoy the baby at a calm time, a playful time, a feeding time, whatever it is. So I do think there's a kind of a a potentially false dichotomy here between these two things. Uh, And I think the synthesis is that the here and now reality doesn't just mean sitting and observing uh, what's there. It sometimes means taking care of someone else, taking care of yourself, and that that there's nothing more present moment than that um, if you can stay alert and and awake while doing it. just looking the uh you you went on and wrote it's as if i've spent my life trying to build a house on a foundation of quicksand but the more quickly and the more strategically i build the sooner the brick and mortar disappears into the earth and i really think this is the dialectic is how do you build your foundation towards your future knowing what you know and at the same time take care of the present moment Obviously, using the analogy of taking care of a baby, a parent wants to take care of the baby right now when they're in pain, distress, whatever, and that's the job of the moment. But when it's not like that, the job is also to be creating a foundation uh, for that baby, teaching things and setting things up so that the baby has a decent life. And I think that's it's hard to do, but I don't think that theoretically there's any problem with thinking that part of your time you're taking care of of the moment and part of the time you're bringing your imagination of the future into the moment and 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 building your foundation um i think this is most of what i wanted to say there's a few more um paragraphs that it's all just continues to be very compelling um but i do invite you though any, any of you really, because you can imagine this might be speaking to something about you, but the person who wrote this is also invited to, to write me directly further and follow up with any questions. I hope that that was a helpful way to put it. Um, so with dialectics, the first two principles, uh, which is what I've been talking about just now, are opposition and synthesis. The basic ideas probably most people listening here know, but I'm not going to assume that because I know every time I go over these things, read about them, think about them, they take a different, slightly different form. They, it's never the same. Uh, but the core idea is, uh, involves stuckness, involves having log jams in your life, uh, having despair, uh, having a feeling that you're stuck, uh, inside uh, certain boundaries and there's hopelessness there's trap Uh, as somebody myself who about two months ago had uh, hip replacement surgery there's such a thing in in life as there being the uh, rubbing of bone on bone which can be very painful and uh, then requires uh, finding uh, some way to um, honor uh, the pain and also honor the structure of your body uh, so that you don't uh, throw away the structure of your body with uh, getting rid of the pain 
uh, and you don't just put up with the pain because of the structure of your body, but finding that uh, way to put it together. If there's a good surgical procedure, it could be a dialectical synthesis. Um, you know, and bone on bone, could you could take that as an analogy for other things, like let's say you're having an intense conflict with one of your children uh, or one of your parents. That can become bone on bone. It can become where, how are we going to get out of this? This is a, we are really stuck and we just keep hitting at each other. We keep, you know, the only solution seems to be to not have anything to do with each other uh, or to die or to wait it out. And all of those seem kind of sad. Um, and the question is, is there a way? Is there a, a way equivalent to the surgical procedure to find a way in the procedure with that person? Uh, it's going to require creating a little space for the validity of both people and yet not abandoning the relationship. Uh, and so... The idea of the opposition, to be more technically right about, uh, though, though if you read about dialectics, it comes from a lot, of, there's a lot of controversy about where it came from exactly, who it came from exactly. It's, it's an interesting history, but it goes in different directions. But I think the basic idea as it informs DBT, the idea of dialectics, is based on that there is a force or idea or proposition or thesis, or something that goes in one direction. And it tends to bring about the, uh, its own opposite. It's like, it's like we have the capacity to bring about our own opposite by pushing in a certain direction. Um, you, let's say you decide to live your life a certain way. Let's say, for sake of argument, you are a pian piano player, and you are a psychotherapist. You want to do both things. But actually, you set up a life, and the job you take, which is a job that looks very good to you, includes the possibility of doing a lot of psychotherapy. And your piano playing trajectory suffers. And you live with that. But it's not bone on bone. You can live with that. It's not a, an, a sort of a late stage, powerful opposition. But after a few years, it starts knocking on the door that you want to return to playing more piano, that you're disappointed. And that grows in intensity the longer you leave it there. And if you have an opportunity to still do that, there may be something that happens uh, where the pressure builds and now it's bone on bone. It's psychotherapy versus piano playing or something like that. And you start to think, Gee, I wonder if there's a way to rearrange my life to allow both, to be able to do both in a more satisfying way than I do now, and maybe at that point you come up with an idea. That idea is a synthesis. It's a basic, basic concept, is that a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of hell comes about because we are stuck with one thing opposing another thing. Sometimes when you're stuck and you're, there's a lot of tension, but it's hard for you to identify what's the thing and the other thing that are opposing each other, but it, from a dialectical point of view, there usually is something, and if you frame it that way, it opens the door for the next step about being dialectical. So what's the next step? The next step is to say, you know, rather than deciding that one of these two propositions is going to be the winner and one's going to be the loser, 
which is the illusory anyway, but that's another thing. <laughs> because if it's a winner, it's, it's winner in the short term, but that doesn't necessarily mean winner in the long term. So let's say what, that you do it that way. That's not dialectical to look for winners and losers. It's also not dialectical to say, you know what, let's just create enough room for both of these forces to go around and do their thing and, uh, and, and have coexistence. No, they'll eventually collide, probably. But the idea of dialectics is something different. It is transactional. It is that this force opposes this force. And then you look for what is valid in both forces. What is valid about wanting to end your pain right now, to reduce your pain, to get relief? What's valid about that? I think it's obvious what's valid about that. Every human being feels that way. Um, there's lots of forms of validity or, or measures for validity, and I think they would most, mostly would converge on this. And then is it valid to want to be able to just be at peace and not have to devote intense attention to taking care of what's going on right now? Of course it is. Absolutely. That's completely valid. One sort of valid way of building a, a life long term, one's valid in terms of resolving pain short term. And they're both valid. So actually a synthesis would be something that would speak to both without having to give up either one. And my suggestion was that within DBT, the distress tolerance skills would be part of the answer to that. It would be the part that has to do with taking care of things now in a skillful way without having to depart from your awareness of the present moment. In fact, awareness of the present moment might even be part of the package that you would use to uh, just to, uh, to get relief. Um, and then you would be, when you could, attending to the longer-term issues of just building a solid foundation. Okay? So that's opposition and synthesis, a couple of examples, ideas. The other three principles I'll be covering next time, which is three weeks from now. And those principles are going to be uh, systemic thinking, um, the fact that uh, our identities are formed and maintained and changed through transactions all the time. It's a tra identity is a transactional phenomenon. It's not just in ourselves. And the, th and the last one will be uh, what's called flux, which is going to overlap considerably with impermanence, with the idea that everything's all re always on the move. Everything's moving. And therefore, that has implications for how to be dialectical. So I'll return to these things next time. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a go good three, I guess it's three weeks from now until the time I talk uh, again on this. Uh, not that that matters to those who are doing it on the website. But anyway, I hope things are going well and that the spring brings good things to all of you. Bye-bye.